Cove Productions presents the Solo in South Philly podcast with your host and local legal whiz, Wit Knowledge, Mark Kachi. What's good, everybody? We are back with season two of the Solo in South Philly podcast. Season two is called I Need a Lawyer. I'll be speaking to lawyers that I reach out to when I need information or advice. Today's guest is Nicholas Palazzo. Nick is an experienced Philadelphia trial attorney. Since litigating personal injury cases in 2010, he quickly realized that his greatest assets were not learned in a classroom or a courtroom, but were learned growing up on the streets of South Philadelphia. It all comes down to grit and relatability. Since embracing his litigation skill set, Nicholas collected over $40 million in settlements and verdicts for his clients in only 13 years. He was one of the youngest lawyers in the state to ever obtain a verdict in excess of $1 million. Personal injury law is a people business. It's about relationships. This is the fuel that motivates Nicholas to take on corporations and insurance companies who constantly place their own profits over the safety of our citizens. Nicholas has been voted a member of the Pennsylvania Super Lawyers Rising Stars list for six consecutive years. Only 2.5% of all Commonwealth PA are given the prestigious honor of Rising Star, and Mr. Palazzo has reached this status in every year of his practice since 2017. Let's welcome Nick Palazzo to the program. How you doing, Nick? I'm doing great, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for spending uh, your Friday afternoon with me. Well, um, it's a rainy one, so it's, uh, it's easy. <laughs> yeah. All right, so... You know, you have quite the distinguished uh, bio that I read and um, personal injury. How did you end up getting into that area of law? So for me, it was um, sort of accidental, I would say. Um, You know, there was an opportunity when I got out of law school uh, with a firm who was uh, uh, family friends um, and they had an opening and and they needed some assistance. Now, this firm, my firm, the Defino firm, we do all different types of law, uh, not just uh, personal injury. Uh, so when I started, uh, you know, I, I took that opportunity, kind of a jack of all, all trades. And um, I was doing everything from criminal law to real estate to zoning, uh, you know, um, anything really. Uh, they they handle it all. Um and uh, and then personal injury sort of uh, that's I, I did a lot of that as well in the beginning. Um, and then I found myself sort of enjoying that the most out of all the different things that I was that I was handling. And um, to be like totally frank about it, I, there's, uh, I think, a, a misconception about what personal injury attorneys do. Uh, to the general public, a lot of people, you know, they'll use the ambulance chaser stuff and, you know, blood money things and like that. But I think people don't realize, and I think we you do get to see if you do it from the inside and you're actually doing that kind of work is that you actually get to make changes uh, and, and uh, in the world in terms of safety um, when you can hold businesses accountable for careless and reckless behavior um, that they often are careless and reckless because they're trying to save themselves a penny and put more money in their pockets at the expense of the safety of their customers and the the general public. And so when you can hold those companies accountable, uh, you realize how um, you actually can effectuate some change and make the world a safer place. And especially so, you know, in a local community, and we've, we've seen changes like obvious changes in communities. I've had 
um, certain cases where uh, there was significant structural issues in in big parking lots and and uh, commercial buildings that were uh, failing and where people have gotten injured, clients of mine, and I've actually uh, taken steps to get those buildings closed down uh, and those businesses closed. Uh, and these are box stores. It's like, you know, the big the big name stores. So it's just one of a thousand stores they might have in Philadelphia. But at that particular place, it was causing a lot of problems and people were having getting injured. And um, we uh, presented some strong claims against them and they eventually decided, you know what, we're going to just uh, stop operating at this particular spot and, until we clean it up. So you see things like that. And that happened right in our neighborhood where we where we grew up. So it was nice to see that uh, someone was finally uh, taking interest in that and making it safe. So let's let's go back to dispel that myth a little bit. I, I'm I know for a fact a lot of people have this aversion to that area of law because of that reputation. But let's talk about ambulance chasing to begin with. I, I think uh, the general public doesn't realize that that's not allowed. Like you weren't you weren't out on the side of 95 last week handing out business cards. That's not something you're allowed to do. Um, and this moniker that gets attributed to that area of law is either something about talking about something that isn't allowed or something that is done by people that are unethical lawyers doing what they shouldn't be doing. Would you agree with that? You're absolutely right. And, and um, I think part of that is, um, you know, when you talk about ethics and uh, legal advertising um, and really what it breaks down to is in-person solicitation. So, um, you know, you, it's permitted or permitted to have billboards or, you know, commercials, TV, podcasts, whatever. Um, that's there's a buffer between the potential client and uh, the attorney. So um, there's a, a an opportunity for pause and to think, well, do I want to hire this attorney or not versus a situation where what we call in-person solicitation. That's what's not allowed. And that's what ambulance chasing is. It's a, it's in-person solicitation. It's when you when an attorney would see that someone was injured and pursue that person in a real-time fashion, like having a conversation with them or uh, sending someone else to have a conversation with them when they know they're injured, know they need an attorney, and then to convince them to go with that attorney. That's wrong. It's not allowed. It's completely unethical, and it's something that I and my firm has never done. In fact, we don't advertise at all. It's all word of mouth. Um, we get our business from our reputation. Uh, and so, I mean, some some advertising. I shouldn't say we don't advertise at all, but there's some. Um, but Well, let's, let's talk about advertising a little bit in South Philly. Uh, my running joke is that the biggest waste of money in South Philly is, is a phone book because yeah. everyone's got a guy. Um, there's a number of people that I know that if I need an accountant, if I need an exterminator, if I need, you know, we, we, me and my wife got married and I don't think there was any deliberation over our vendors, right? It's who did you use? Are they good? What's the, what's the rap sheet on them? So, you, you know, your website touts you as, as having a South Philly upbringing. Um, why don't you talk about that in terms of getting your clients that are people from the neighborhood that are able to just walk in off the street. They recognize, you know, the outside and 
and maybe know some of the people that have worked there or worked with them in the past and, and just come in there on their own? Yeah. So a lot of uh, our practices, uh, local, um, you know, we, I take pride in, in my upbringing and it's, I think it's twofold, you know, one is in that, you know, from being from the inner city, uh, I think I have a tough skin and, um, a little bit more of a rugged exterior. And, uh, that helps me when I'm litigating cases in Philadelphia, you know, where people are going to be like me. Uh, I'm going to have jurors who are similar to me, who understand me, who I know how to talk to and know how to talk to me back. Um, there's a certain, we know South all Philadelphia has its own jargon, its own lingo. And that's something that I am really comfortable with. So it, I think that gives me a, an upper hand, but also um, as far as representing our community, um, we, are still in South Philadelphia, our business, our actual brick and mortar operation. And um, it, it gives us the ability to see people on a daily basis. I mean, we're, I'm talking about walk-ins. I mean, people just walk into our office, no appointment, and we'll sit down and we'll talk to them and we'll try to guide them. And it could be anything from a non-legal problem. It could be something that doesn't we don't even handle. Um, it could be a family law issue or a custody thing that's just not our thing, um, but we'll get them and guide them into the right direction. Uh, so we we try to approach uh, the legal business as a as a family law practice, like but not in the terms of doing family law. But it's like a family doctor. You go to them; they're the generalists, right? And and that's how we try to approach it. Any issue, any problem, we're there for you. We'll help them. We do everything from legal things, but also community outreach. We're involved in the South Philly Business Association. Uh, we try to keep business, small business alive and running in South Philly and throughout the city. And um, and we do a lot of fundraising and things like that too. So it's just uh, being a part of the community and having a presence known where we, all most of us in our firm has all grown up and, and still live or live closely uh, to this day. So it's it's definitely a big part of what we do. So let's let's talk about relatability. Um, I'm sure you've heard the the phrase in law school, like the A students become judges and the B students, whatever, and the C students yeah. are the ones that Great. make the money. I love that. And quote. I think yeah. I think a lot of times it's misinterpreted because I think students that aren't that smart think they're going to do well, but I think it's more about what you said and speaking to the jury. If you're trying to get points across to a jury of, of your peers. Um, speaking in a fashion or translating legal concepts to them may not be as effective as someone that may have the, the perfect analogy or the perfect explanation or the more concise phrase to use. Would you agree? Without a doubt. Um, I, I remember the first internship I had in law school. I worked with a judge, uh, Matthew Carafiello, great guy. Uh, one of the best judges we've had. And, um, you know, he was a South Philly guy. And he always, he, I remember this to this day, he, he explained to me that as attorneys, we're word warriors. We're word warriors, right? That's what we do. Um, and he, he explained to me how as a judge, it was important for him, whereas when he was in practice, it wasn't as important. When he became a judge, it was really important to kind of remember that, um, he has this vernacular that not everybody might understand. 
and and had to had to have make a conscious effort to sort of uh, remove some of that South Philly slang that he was so accustomed to using. Uh, versus while he was in practice, it was a, it was an advantage to him. Um, and I remember that to this day, and I still use that in my practice now because um, I think we, that's part of the relatability concept. I mean, you need to be able to uh, relate to your clients. Um, and they have to be able to relate to you because what's most important in personal injury law is explaining to uh, an insurance company or a judge or most importantly a jury um, what not just what problems your client has as a result of an incident, but also what their life was like before that incident. And so if the client can't relate to you, and doesn't feel comfortable discussing and really opening up and explaining who they were before and how they've changed, then you can't get that foundation of information that you need to then relay that to a jury. And then the second step of that is once you get on that relatable uh, playing field with your client and get that foundation of information because they feel comfortable explaining and getting into it with you so you actually understand who they were and how they changed, then you have to take that information Perceive who your audience is, whether it's a Philly jury who compri- who's comprised of people like your client, or maybe a, a Montgomery County jury who may be comprised of people who maybe aren't like your client, or maybe a judge who's perhaps maybe more sophisticated and and uh, maybe a you know or or maybe it could be an insurance adjuster who might be very like your client. Um, re- whoever that audience is, you have to take that foundation of information and then try to relate to that person who you're telling about the story about how your client was injured. Um, and so if you if you don't have the ability to sort of understand uh, and relate to all different walks of life and types of people and uh, different societies and cultures and things like that, it's a disadvantage in the personal injury game. Um, you know, if I was a contract lawyer and I was drafting documents all day, it probably wouldn't matter that much. If I did uh, family law, it probably wouldn't matter that much. If I was doing criminal defense, it wouldn't matter that much. In the criminal defense area, it's different because a lot of times you're you're representing people who you can you have to be able to relate to. It's that part of it. The first end of it's the same. Uh, but the second end of it's different because you're ultimately going to be making this case to a jury. Um, and so there's different things you need to hit on, uh, and different things you're trying to highlight um, that may not have come into play in the civil area. So, um, yeah, it's it's. I think it's one of my best strengths to be able to be able to talk to different people, understand different types of people and sort of feel like I'm one of them. Um, I've been I've been there with them. You know, uh, I've seen it um, uh, and and not coming from a, uh, a, a, a an affluent area, I think, uh, gives me a, a, an upper hand when talking to the average Joe type of client or the average Joe juror. Um, I, I don't litigate cases between Fortune 500 companies. Um, that's not what I do, and uh, that's not what I want to do. That's great. Let's talk about an apprehension that I think a lot of people have, especially if they haven't dealt with lawyers before, maybe if they have dealt with lawyers before, 
there's this fear that potential clients, they, they feel fear that once they engage with the lawyer, there's this meter that starts running and they can't really control it. And bills become very expensive. And I think a lot of clients don't realize that that may be the fee structure with certain cases, but there's various areas of law. And, and, and in many of them, there's fee structures that are comp- composed in a way that helps the client. Um, and in your area law, you know, it's kind of the standard to have a contingency fee arrangement where the attorney, you know, the client only pays once the case is over if if they're successful and it's coming out of money that they don't have their in their pocket today and money that they wouldn't have got if it weren't for your assistance. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? That's yeah. I mean, that's exactly right, Mark. I mean, so every every case that I handle now, like, as I said, I've done other areas of law and, and there's different fee structures with criminal defense versus, uh, you know, contracts versus real estate. There's all different things, but in the personal injury area, it's strictly contingency. Um, there's absolutely no risk to the client. Uh, if we don't recover, they don't owe us anything. We take, we take on risk, um, not just with our time, you know, in doing the work, um, but also in the actual costs that are required to pursue the case. So there are costs involved in pursuing a personal injury case. You have to obtain medical records. You have to do an investigation. uh, You have to uh, take depositions. You have to um, oftentimes hire experts, which is a big part of the cost analysis. And so all those costs, the attorneys take on. And if we lose the case, which rarely happens, but if it happens, we suffer the consequences of that. Uh, both our time is gone. Uh, we don't get compensated for the time that we spent. And we also lose the investment that we made in paying for those costs. The, the client does not owe us anything. Um, they only owe us if we actually get a settlement or a verdict and we make a recovery. And then out of that money that we obtain, then we keep our percentage of um of the recovery. However, I should say um, that shouldn't, for people who are listening to this that are prospective clients of personal injury cases, uh, that that you shouldn't think that simply because you're not um, responsible for those costs or that fee until there's a recovery, that you don't have an interest in knowing what's going on in terms of what's being spent. Um, because, and I think a lot of times, some of the bigger box firms, the factory firms, or um, and maybe even some small firms who just aren't really too conscious of their clients' goals, uh, ignore the fact that um, you can overspend on a case, and and if you overspend on experts and uh, and and medical documentation and investigation, um, that ultimately comes out of the client's pocket in the end. So if there if the availability of insurance coverage is limited, uh, there may only be a hundred thousand dollar policy. Well, if the attorney may think, well, I can settle this case, I can get the whole hundred thousand if I spend thirty thousand in, in costs, I'll get the whole hundred thousand. So I'll make my thirty three thousand dollar fee. Um, the I'll get my thirty thousand dollars in costs that I put out back, and then the client ends up with less than thirty grand. Um, you know, that, well, I guess, and and so that isn't a good thing for the client versus Mm -hmm. maybe the goal should be, 
well, maybe we can only spend five grand and settle it for 75,000, at which point the client's going to make 45 in their pocket. Me as the attorney made less. I only made 25. I didn't make that 33,000 that I could have gotten if I got the whole hundred. And so you have to think about that because you're, my goal as an attorney is to make sure that my client's goals are met. And that's across the board in any area of law, right? You may have yep. different goals for different clients. Um, and so if even though I can get a bigger settlement number on a case, it doesn't mean that the client is getting more money in their pocket. If I had to spend an exorbitant amount of money in terms of cost, experts or whatnot to get there. And so that should not be my ultimate goal just to get the biggest number. It should be, how can I get the biggest number to put in my client's pocket? That's got to be the goal. And there's other goals too. I mean, it may not just be putting the most money in your client's pocket. The client may have a goal of getting a case resolved quickly rather than two years from now. And in some in some situations, you might have to take uh, a different approach and, and it may result in a in less of a of an overall settlement and less of a fee, but that's what the client's goal is. They want to get it quickly resolved. I have clients who are in their 80s who've injured, who are injured in car accidents or in fall down incidents or, or uh, you know, building collapses. I mean, and and they don't want to be, they don't want that money uh, when they're on their deathbed. You know, they want to get that case resolved quickly so they can use it towards their end of life to do whatever they they think they need to do it with. So I have to be conscious of that as a, as an attorney representing my client's goals. So if your client, if you think as a personal injury attorney, your job is to just get the biggest potential settlement number, then you're doing it wrong. Your job is to get the most money that your client in your client's pocket. That's number one. And number two, sometimes that's not even always the goal. It depends on how quickly that that client wants to get the case done or not. And you have to think about that. There's other things too. Maybe the client doesn't want to be involved in a whole full-blown litigation. Maybe they have family issues or responsibilities that they can't devote that kind of time and effort. And they want to get the case resolved in an expeditious or a, or a less invasive way. If that's something that's interested to your client, um, then you have to take that into consideration and you have to make sure you, you you structure your strategy in a way that effectuates that goal for your client. Um, and I, unfortunately, I think some of the, you know, the factory, I call them factory firms. I can't get away from that term, but in some of those places, you're just an X and an O and there's that, there's not that personal touch. Um, they just look at your medical records and your injuries and the damages. And that's all they think about. They don't think about what the actual specific goals of the client might be. These are great details that, I didn't even think about um, that. That makes a lot of sense. You, you hear about a lot of these mills bragging that they have the financial fortitude to drag things on, but based on what you're saying, at times they're doing it, you know, for their own interest. Um, yeah. Because their their payday could be larger, and and like you said, if the client needs the money now, um, it, it may not be in their best interest to string this thing along. Yeah, that and the, and I think the big point is that with when you have uh, an insurance coverage issue, where the the potential recovery might be limited. So if you're spending and spending and spending just because you want to get that max recovery, um, but you, you're capped out, and it's not just with insurance, yeah, also also with uh, claims against the city or the state or any sovereignty. Um, you know, like a governmental entity, there's there's statutory caps in the amount that you re, you can recover. 
So you, even if you make the best case by spending all this money with these experts and you should put on this case that your client has injuries that are worth millions of dollars, if you're capped at 250000 you just wasted all your client's money doing that. You should have tried to get the 250 without spending the money rather than making it easy on yourself by getting the 250 by spending 50 grand. If the, the attorney who can get the 250 cap uh, in a in a state case versus the state or SEPTA is doing better if they spend five grand and get the 250 versus the attorney or even taking it in a step further. You're doing better if you spend five grand and only get 200 than if you spent 50 and got the 250. Because now your client in the latter scenario is getting less money in their pocket. That that's not good. Even though you got an, ultimately got a bigger number on the settlement. The only thing, the only advantage that the only person who has an advantage in that situation is the attorney. They're the ones making more money. No one else is, and that's terrible. And I should say, not only the attorney, but also the experts making more money too. Okay. So moving on from attorney, let's talk about the defendant in in a personal injury action. There's a concept that we learn about in law school called the deep pocket. Um, so I'd like you to talk a little bit about this. And I, I think the theory is this. Often the main culprit uh, of, of an incident is someone, um, you know, or maybe the person who caused the, the tort and they may not have a lot of money. Right. So the problem is you may prevail at trial, but you don't get your um you don't get the plaintiff what they want because you get some paper that says you're entitled to a certain sum, but that person is not going to be able to pay up. I'll, I'll give you the perfect example. So, so what you do is you attach a deep pocket, right? You find another person or another party that's culpable that can pay. So an example that comes to mind is Aaron Andrews, right? So Aaron Andrews was involved in this incident where she was, staying at hotels. I forget which, which chain it was. Um, and some, some pervert was following around drilling holes and videoing her. Right. So she sues this guy. Now this guy is obviously someone that doesn't have anything, but at the same time, her, her plaintiff's attorney realized that, well, the Marriott or whatever hotel brand it was, does have a lot of money. And they're also, they're also, contributing to what happened to Aaron Andrews here. And she got paid a lot of money and you know that that money is coming from them. So why don't you talk a little bit about the deep pocket and the deep pocket theory? Yeah. So we see a lot in, um, in bar fights, you know, assault cases where uh, an individual beats someone up at a bar and, the re or a club or a restaurant. And the reason why they do it a lot of times is because they were served because they were visibly intoxicated and they got, you know, so drunk that they couldn't control themselves and they wound up attacking somebody. Um, and you see it in situations like this. Um, you know, I've done some bed bug litigation, similar kind of thing, uh, where we, we with hotels and stuff like that. Um, and then we've even, you even see it in the concept of um, just a driver that is employed by a bigger company. Uh, so you might have a, a Walmart driver who's driving a truck for Walmart delivering products or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, in the assault situation, it gets tricky. And that's where we see it come up the most. And the reason why it gets tricky is because you want to you want to get 
you want to structure your case to place the most blame on the entity that um, was was housing these people. So the idea is that if you are a business invitee, you're uh, going to a bar or restaurant um, to benefit the business of that bar restaurant. Uh, So they have an obligation at that point to provide some level of care to you. Um, And although that other person who's also a patron may be the assailant, um, and by punching you or this prospective client, um, they're certainly liable for those for those damages. Uh, So is the entity that brought you guys in there, if you can establish that they did not provide a reasonable level of care to you. Um, And so you want to structure your case so that you can put the most blame on the entity uh, and in, in the dram shop or the liquor liability stuff, uh, what we're doing is we're saying you, the, the bar, the restaurant had a vested interest in over-serving and serve, over-serving this individual to the point where they could not even understand what their actions were. Um, but you know who could understand what their actions were? The, the person counting the money at the bar, you know, the, the manager or the owners of that bar, they knew exactly what they're doing by telling their employees to over-serve. Um, and so you can structure your case to go after the deep pocket rather than the perhaps, you know, 20 year old college kid who doesn't have, you know, a penny uh, who may have actually been the one who punched the guy. And so that's the idea of the deep pocket. And in the uh, vicarious liability scenario where you're going, if, you, if there's a driver or an employee who perhaps was negligent, um, you can extend that liability. If that employee was operating within the course and scope of their employment, and then you immediately can go after the employer, so the bigger target, um, who would often have the bigger pocket, uh, rather than just limiting your claim to the employee who was negligent and maybe causing a car accident or a trucking accident or something, if you can uh, establish that they were driving that vehicle for the benefit of someone else or some other entity, then you can get the entity, the larger entity, and that will enable you to get a bigger recovery. Uh, because like you said, you can get a judgment against any person who may have punched you or um, caused a car accident or was negligent in the operation of anything. Um, but it, if that person doesn't have sufficient insurance, which is a whole other level of this, um, then you can't get blood from a stone. So you're going to get a piece of paper that says this person owes you this much money. And that's as good as toilet paper for the most part. Uh, Soon after that person could file bankruptcy and will never have to pay you a penny. Um, And so what's the point, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And and as a personal injury attorney, who's, who's working cases on contingency, uh, we don't want to get involved in those situations too much because if we can't, find a pocket that's deep or a pocket that has something to pay for the damages, uh, then we know that even if we spend all this time and money and effort and get a huge verdict or a huge judgment, uh, we're never going to get any actual money. And so that's going to be a waste of our time and our costs. We're not going to get reimbursed. And not only that, but the client's not going to get anything either. So it's a, it would be a wasted effort. So a big part of vetting a personal injury case and, and knowing whether or not it's going to be a valuable one is, is there a pocket that's deep enough to compensate uh, that individual who was injured for their injuries? And if not, um, 
then oftentimes it's unfortunate, but it, it's, it, it may look from the outset like the greatest case, but if there's no coverage, if there's no deep pocket, then it's not a great case. And that, like I said, the insurance issue kind of adds a whole other wrinkle on that because a lot of times, um, which is interesting, I mean, this is, I think, something we should talk about. Um, despite inflation and, uh, you know, the, uh, the standard of living that we've de- sort of all been accustomed to over the last uh, 50 years, Pennsylvania's statutory minimum auto insurance coverage is only $15,000. So you can drive a car in Pennsylvania and only have insurance up to $15,000. That's been the same since the 70s, despite... This right, our, our standard of living has has went up dramatically. Um, you know, inflation has went up dramatically. Medical and costs, if you medical costs have went up dramatically. Yep. And still, for fifty years, they haven't changed that law to require individuals who are driving to have higher insurance policies. Um, why? Well, you, we already know the answer to that. The insurance lobbying industry is like you know. The Pope, you know, they're they're infallible. I mean, they they cannot be taken down, and they lobby year after year after year in Harrisburg to make sure that those caps stay low, uh, that that minimum policy is still fifteen thousand. Like I said, over the last fifty years, it hasn't changed, and it's it's terrible. And it's, honestly, it's it's probably the uh, one thing that annoys me the most um, in terms of you know. Well, I have a I have a whole list of reasons why I don't get along with insurance companies, but that's probably one of the the biggest. Yeah, and so in terms of the deep pocket, this is one thing I always tell people. Correct me if I'm wrong. People often have criminal records and and things in their background, mistakes that they've made, and it's really unfortunate. And then when when they look for jobs. Um, you know, often it's a disqualifier. If they have something violent or if they have a crime of theft or dishonesty, it, it company's policy says, you know, you're, you're ineligible for hiring um, if this shows up. And I often tell people like it's nothing personal. Um, and even if the person hiring you believes that you've changed and, and who you are and that you're not going to do something like this again, it's a risk because if, if that person who has assault in their, in their, background were to do something on the job, then that gives the victim, the plaintiff in in a personal injury case, the opportunity to say that there was negligent hiring or negligent entrustment going on and gets to basically attach their lawsuit to the deep pocket and go after the company. So, you know, a lot of this stuff with criminal histories, a lot of it has to do with not any personal feelings towards the applicant. But it's this huge risk that a company has to inherit when onboarding an employee. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, that's that's a big part of it. Um, it reminds me of a case I'm working on now, which is um, there's a, a terrible situation. It happened at a casino uh, where my clients were assaulted by security guards who had prior criminal histories. Um, and, uh, there was like a verbal dispute. It got out of hand and they were, they were very injured and it's, uh, it's on video and 
it's terrible. Um, and a big part of our case is looking into that prior knowledge um, of, uh, of of these assailants' previous history with violence. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, I think the issue is though sometimes it's like you know when you're when you're dealing with like you know hiring security guards or um, you know, folks like that, uh, it may be a limited pool and. Anyone who has some experience in that area, certainly you would expect them to have had some previous history with, you know, a violent altercation. So their pool is limited um, in terms of who they have to hire. And the employer takes on that risk, though. Uh, that's that's part of, of um, being a, a good a good employer. Uh, so it's first is, OK, well, is there a criminal history or was your prior history of violence justified because maybe the other individual started it and, and you were just defending yourself? And so you want to look into the specifics of that as an as an employer who's thinking about hiring these individuals. And then when you have if you're forced to hire someone who perhaps had a previous run in with, a you know, with fighting or things like this, um, you can, it's not just, okay, well, you're hired. No, it's okay. You're hired. And then here's training. Here's policies. Here's uh, we've, we've promulgated these specific policies that you should look, look at, you should consider, and you should review. And here's a set of series of training courses that'll enable someone to effectuate a, uh, a non violent takedown, like, um, Rather than a punch, there are certain holes and there are certain grips that you can, uh, you know, subdue an individual if it's necessary from a security guard perspective. Um, but time and time again, what we see is these uh, large companies hiring individuals who um, ha- either have a prior history or if they don't, or if even if they do, once they hire them, they don't spend the money to promulgate these policies or to mm-hmm. uh, have them trained in this type of non-aggressive, uh, n- non-combative takedown maneuvers. And also there's other things that, are, that involve no violence at all, no physical restraint at all that you can do um, different sort of, you know, calming sort of procedures and policies where you, a lot of, one of the things we see a lot of is like a, a number of present individuals. So if it's like one security guard, that's not good. If you see someone's getting out of hand in your place of business and you only send one security guard over there, well, that individual who's getting out of hand may think they have a chance to take them on and then it's going to escalate. Whereas if you send over 10 guys, right, that person who was getting a little bit out of hand may kind of fall back a little bit and be less likely to rise it to the next level. Um, But why don't you see that? Because they don't want to hire 10 guys. They only want to hire five guys because if they hire 10 guys, it's going to cost them more money and then they don't make as much profit. And that gets back to that whole, Hey, look, uh, sorry. uh, I don't care how, you know, if you're the, the Wynn hotel in Vegas, I'm sure you're making plenty of money. You could spend a few extra bucks on extra security guards. Right. Um, And so, but rat, these companies would, would rather, had the pockets of their shareholders rather than spend a few extra bucks to make sure that their patrons are safe. And that's what would, as a personal injury attorney, that's what I'm trying to change, right? We're trying to, to, to exploit that. If that's what you're doing as a company, that's going to be exhibit A in our trial. We want to show that not only was my client injured, but you're risking injury safety of everyone else 
in the community and perhaps the same people that are on that jury that are ultimately giving the award. Um, that's what we tr- that's the message we're trying to send. Um, so yeah, that, that's why, you know, it's this profits over safety analysis in every personal injury case that if you can work that in, you get really great results for your clients too. Um, and you, and you can actually effectuate change. So let's talk a little bit about these insurance companies. Um, do you have any insight into this? I realize it's the other side of the curtain, but like they seem to have this this model where they don't care and they would rather pay their attorneys and let things move down the road rather than settle a case or attempt to settle the case out the gate. It, do, you, do you have an, like, I'll give an example. I know someone that fell outside of a restaurant. This is not a litigious person. This is someone who works. This is someone that had visible damages that were confirmed. Like, there's no way like the person had a prima facie case and I'm not even a, a personal injury attorney. There was no effort to settle this at any point, And then it got past the summary judgment stage and then they end up settling and they end up, you know, paying whatever attorney's fees they have. Like, and I, I think that's a, another reason why attorneys like you need to be hired because they just blindly are dismissive of everything and then only open up the wallets later down the line after spending money. Is it a model? Is it pride? What What is it? It's definitely not pride. It's all dollars and cents to them. Um, and I think what it comes down to is, um, so first, there's two different types of attorneys that work for insurance companies. You have in-house attorneys who are essentially uh, – almost employees of the insurance company. They get like a salary and whether they're working a thousand hours or 10 hours on a case, their salary is the same. So in that scenario, there is no legal fee. So they can investigate and they can explore and they can look into uh, this claim and this individual who's claiming these injuries, um, basically free of charge and then decide if they want to pay them. And then the other scenario is, is where an insurance company will pay a firm on an hourly rate. Um, and in that scenario, it does cost the money. Uh, there's a cost to defend the claim that the insurance company has to consider. Uh, but I think what happens is, um, is that, you know, when you're talking to an insurance adjuster about a claim, uh, that ad- if you're asking for a certain amount of money, that adjuster has to justify to their supervisor, to the next level and the next level above them, why they paid a certain amount on a claim. And so, uh, whereas the the cost of defense are sort of built in, like they understand that once the claim is initiated, they're going to have to, they may have to incur a certain amount of money on costs, right? Um, But what they're concerned about as the adjuster is if I overpay without the justification. It's okay to overpay if there's justification, right? They could pay a lot of money on a claim if they have the justification for it. So that when an auditor is looking back at that uh, adjuster's file in two years to see if they, you know, when I say auditor, I don't mean like a tax audit, but an auditor from the insurance company auditing that individual uh, in terms of like a performance review. When they're looking back, yeah, internally, when they're looking back to see, well, why did you pay this much money on this claim? If they don't have the requisite justification for it, uh, then that's not going to look good on them. So the adjusters would rather 
litigate the claim, go through the depositions, look through all the medical records, subpoena prior medical records to see if there was a prior issue, maybe similar body part, then maybe that could have a reason why the person's having such trouble now. Uh, it's not related to our incident or something like that. They'd rather look at that. And then after they determine, well, there was no prior incident. So check the box there. Oh, this person is a really nice person. They present really well. They seem honest. They are sweet and kind. And you know what? Um, they're a hardworking individual. They're not litigious. Uh, this is their first claim. Um, and then they check the boxes there. And then they could say, oh, and when we look at the liability, what she says makes sense because there's an expert who just who supports that. Um, and we've questioned that expert or we looked into that expert's uh, background and they seem legitimate. And then they could check the box there. Uh, and so then once they make those checks, right, then they have the justification for then spending the money and paying that claim. Uh, a lot of times when it's pre-suit, the insurance companies sort of uh, – Prevented. They don't have all the those weapons at their disposal to sort of look into these things and check the boxes, uh, which is why a lot of times they're going to have a defensive approach. Um, and it's not always like your claims denied. It's like, hey, look, like we recognize that there may be exposure here, but we just have some questions that aren't answered yet. Um, so it's not always an evil motive. Um, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, they are trying to pay you as little as they can on every claim. Uh, but also, um, they have an obligation to their uh, to their employer to to move the files and resolve them if they're justified. So, but that's the key word. They have to justify it. And so they need to check those boxes. And it's our job as attorneys to kind of analyze, you know, well, if we do go into litigation and we do go for and we give them those weapons and we let them, uh, you know, turn over those stones, is it going to be good for us? Or is it going to be bad for us? Like, did you have a prior claim where you injured that same body part three years ago? You know, did the action really happen the way you said it did or did it happen differently? And and that's a part of what we have to consider on whether or not we actually want to go to litigation or not. Um, maybe we should take the pre-suit settlement offer because if they start looking into these things, they're going to find out more than we want them to know. You know, so those are all the all the things that we need to look at. Um, so it's not always a, an evil motive, but um, I definitely think uh, it, it does come down to just making sure that they're not they're not going to pay. And I should say this too: um, that comes up when you're talking larger settlements, right? Um, you know, on the 10, 15, 20, $25,000 claims, you know, stuff I, I've done earlier part of my career, I've seen this, like they, they'll pay those ones. You know, it's like no big deal. No, no one's looking over their shoulder two years from now and saying, why did you pay this $20,000 claim here? But it's, but if you pay 200,000, you better make sure you had all your, all your questions answered and all of those boxes checked before you cut that check. Uh, and that's, that's what it is. I think that's incredible insight into into that, in the, into that piece of it. You got to understand the different working, the different parts, and you got to understand the different interests of individuals on that side. Mm. And often is the case with preventative medicine. You don't get thanked for spending money to prevent catastrophe. If anything, right. you would right. second guess why was that money spent? So often that results in people letting things go until their hand is forced. And that's when they write the check. So right. that does that does make a lot of sense. Um, another thing you've talked about, I think you I think you've talked about on social media, and I I, I like added. I'm making this list of. I feel like there's things in this in this world that a lot of times we don't realize 
uh, oh, I know you're, I know you're getting general public I love doesn't this one. realize. Um, and this is definitely one of them. And, it, and it's about the insurance company's, you know, conspicuous absence uh, yeah. as the true defendant, right, in, in these personal injury claims. So wh- why don't you talk about this? Right. So, like, so there's these misnomers about this, like, well, I'm not suing her. I'm suing her insurance. You know, you, you hear people say that, right? And that's true in a way. Um, you know, when when someone's injured in a car accident or a fall incident uh, at a at a Walmart or a Target or something, um, or uh, in a bar fight, you know, and you're you're uh, <laughs> you, you sue the actual entity or the actual person. So if you're injured, you're not suing the insurance company. You're suing the person who rear-ended you or who blew the red light. Um, And you're suing that individual. Now, um, throughout the entire trial process, right, the insurance company is making all the decisions for that person that you sued. They have no control. Um, the defendant, the actual person that you sued, the actual person who was negligent, um, has no control on what the case is going to settle for. Uh, it's the insurance company who has all the decision-making ability. Uh, and at trial, it's it's Joe versus Mike. It's not Joe versus State Farm. It's Joe versus Mike. And uh, the jury never hears the word insurance company mentioned at all throughout the entri- entire trial po- process no matter what. And if the word insurance is, is mentioned accidentally by a witness, there's going to be a missed trial. We're going to have to try the whole case over again. Uh, and uh, it's very difficult as a plaintiff's attorney to overcome that because oftentimes if you might have an individual who it could be a 80 year old woman, who's, you know, who blew a red light because, you know, the sun was in her eyes or something. And, and so it's this poor, old lady who made a mistake and uh and 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 my client maybe someone who had a terrible fracture who had to have three surgeries on their leg and was out of work for six months and and they have all these damages medical bills and wage loss and all these expenses um but it's joe with all these problems and all these expenses and all these 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 damages versus this poor little old lady who's you know 80 years old made a mistake and Mm -hmm. to convince a jury to pay Joe for all those damages is difficult when the jury thinks that it's being paid by that little old lady. Um, but that's not what's happening. So it is a conspicuous, like you, what did you say? Uh, yeah, they're they're absence, absence, right? Conspicuous absence. And, and, but they're not absent. They're just, the jury never knows that they're there. Uh, and it's sad because if the jury knew they were there, then they would probably be more likely to actually provide a verdict that's commensurate with the actual damages amount rather than feeling bad for the person who has to pay it, like the little old lady. Because in the end of the day, she's not paying it. But to the jury, it appears like she's the one that has to pay it. And that's, a, in my opinion, it's terrible. It's wrong. It's not the way it is. It should be transparent. Everybody should know if there's insurance, there's insurance. If there's not, there's not. And the jury should know that, but the law doesn't see it that way. Um, so if you're on a jury or you're going to be on a jury and it's Joe versus Mike or whoever the individual might be that's getting sued, I can almost guarantee you 90% of the time there's an insurance company who's paying the bill 
And once that person, once you render a verdict, it's not coming out of the little old lady's pocket. It's being paid by her insurance company. Um, that's 90% of the time. Now, there are some scenarios where trials go, you go to trial and there may not be insurance, but if it's, if I'm handling that case, then I made a mistake at the outset by not making sure there was insurance. I don't want that scenario. I don't want to be in a position where I'm being compensated on a contingent fee and my client is expecting compensation when I know at the end of the day, there's not going to be any insurance money. There's not going to be any money. You can get a verdict and it's not going to be good for you. And any person who has enough money, right? Any person who actually is wealthy enough to pay a verdict is going to have sufficient insurance. That's what smart, educated, wealthy people do. They have sufficient insurance because they want to protect their assets. And so there's insurance and it's the insurance company paying it nine, probably 99% of the time. Um, and it's just, it's sad that you don't know that. So, but that brings me back to one of the big points um, that I think I got to touch on for you, Mark, is that that's why we love to see cases where we're not just suing an individual, we're suing the deep pocket. And, and when we say deep pocket, it's not just the deep pocket in terms of who could pay for it. Because even in a Walmart or a Target or, um, you know, J.B. Hunt or these truck tractor trailer companies, um, it's not just the company that's paying it. It's an insurance company who's paying it for the company too, right? So they do have a deep pocket, but they're not even the deepest pocket. The, the real pocket is the insurance company. But we, yep. at least in those kinds of cases, when you're suing these big companies, these you know publicly traded companies or even large private companies, um, you, you don't have to worry as a plaintiff's attorney that the individual is, well, that's being sued is is going to be looked at the jury at, by the jury as someone who can't afford it or who they might feel bad for. No one's going to feel bad for Walmart if they're being careless. No one's going to feel bad for JB Hunt if they're being careless and hiring their drivers. No one's going to be going to be feeling bad for Amazon if they're not providing their drivers of Amazon delivery trucks with sufficient training on how to safe safely drive those giant trucks, right? Like no, there's not going to be that concept so we don't have to worry about it in that scenario. So what we do is we look to find that sort of that entity, that that defendant that's a company or a, or a business, uh, and we want to sue that uh, because we don't have to worry about the conspicuous absence of the insurance company in that scenario. We don't have to worry about the jury thinking, well, I don't want to make the poor little old lady pay. If, if I'm suing defend, uh, the defendants, Walmart or Target or Amazon, I don't have to worry about that as a plaintiff's lawyer. You know, that that that's one aspect of the trial that I don't have to overcome. Um, it's already built in. And back to that point, that's when we want to even exploit it even further. And we want to show that that those giant conglomerate companies who are making money hand over fist, the only reason they're, they're making more money than they should because they're being careless and not spending a little bit of that money that they're making on safety policies, on making sure that their drivers are sufficiently trained or hiring more security guards in a particular scenario, or making sure that those security guards come from uh, a certain background that are sufficient. Maybe they have to pay them a little bit more, right? But they have the, the, the training and the credentialing needed to make sure they do a good job. But rather than pay those folks a little bit more money, they're gonna pay these guys over here who, uh, you know, they, they don't have any background in security. They don't have any training in security, but they're cheaper 
in terms of the labor force. So they're going to rather pay them. Uh, and then they'll wonder why they do a bad job. So it's profits over safety. Then we could exploit that. Uh, to make the jury, it kind of flips the other way. Now, now instead of the jury feeling bad for the defendant and saying, "Well, I don't, I feel bad," little old lady's going to have to pay all this money, um, but she only made a mistake. Now it's no, you know, kind of screw Walmart. You know, they were careless and reckless, for the, and it's their own fault. They they knew what they had to do. They just had to spend a little bit more money to do a better cleanup of their parking lot or, or to hire better employees, and they chose not to. Why? Because the Wall family's making more money. You know, um, mm-hmm. now it's like now you can flip that and then you can infuriate the jury and get them upset about it and say, no, the only reason why this person got hurt is because they were trying to put the pad their shareholder pockets with more money rather than spend a little bit of that to make sure that the world's a safer place. You know, so now we can flip that on its head. So you want to try to avoid the situation where you have the little old lady who the jury doesn't even know there's an insurance company behind. Uh, and try to find a pocket or a defendant in that claim uh, that the jury's going to have the opposite opinion of. Uh, that's the that's the goal uh, of finding a really successful case. I think that's a great a great discourse on on bias, a bias that we don't always talk about, right? So it's it's about your your wealth, right? So there's little old lady versus you know, if the gecko from the Geico commercial was in the courtroom, how people would feel towards that defendant versus the big, you know, multinational company. Um, and, and just sort of the ways that juries can can think about things and and render a verdict. Um, but yeah, the good lawyering will will shift these things into your favor. They make these rules in the interest of fairness. It results in the uphill climb uh, with the insurance companies, as you mentioned. But as you also mentioned, there's other ways around it. So it's a good I mean, I guess the, mm-hmm. You know, the idea behind why that rule is in place is it comes from a good spot. Um, so because I think the reason why you have the rule of evidence that prevents the mentioning of insurance is because you don't want the jury to just give the plaintiff money simply because they know it's coming from an insurance company as opposed to the person. It's like, you don't want the jury to just be distributing wealth, redistributing yep. wealth. Yep. Um, you know, it's not the job of the jury to give a windfall to the plaintiff. It's the job of the jury to compensate them for the injuries they sustain. And if the jury thinks, well, who cares? It's coming out of the insurance company's pocket. Um, you know, they got enough money. Let's just give this guy a couple extra hundred thousand to make him happy. He seems like a nice guy. That's not the role of what the jury's supposed to be doing. So I get why they have the rule. It just oftentimes it operates in the reverse where the jury, the person is really injured, uh, really did have a significant problem and have some severe damages, but the jury is hesitant to render a verdict against the individual defendant, like the little old lady, because they feel bad for the little old lady. They're not supposed to do that either. And there's no um, there's no counterbalancing rule of evidence that protects it from that situation. Goes back to why? Probably because the insurance companies lobby against that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so you feel it should be some kind of probative, uh, you know, probative test, probative versus prejudicial test something akin to that, whether you can bring in the insurance company or not. That that would be your fix right, to yeah. this dilemma? Yeah, it, 
if if the, the if the defense is hold if the defense puts on their case and it's like look she just made a mistake she apologized she's sorry and they're essentially appealing to the sympathies of the jury by doing that then I should be able to in response and rebuttal to say okay well yeah she may be sorry she may have just made a mistake they're making this all about her it has nothing to do with her it has to do with my client and the damages he had and by the way what they didn't tell you is it's not even her who's paying the judgment so don't fall victim to the defense's argument that we should all feel bad for the little old lady who made the mistake. It's not even coming out of her pocket. She's got an insurance company that's willing to pay a million dollars on this thing. You know, she's covered. And yep. so what, if the, if they make, and that's what they do though. See, the defense, they'll, they'll make their case about, forget about the plaintiff, the person who was injured, feel bad about my client who just made a mistake and now might have to pay all this money. They shouldn't be permitted to do that either, but there's no rule of evidence preventing them from doing that right now. And, and I, that's I'd the like issue. To, so I'd rather like than get into that, we just look for the, the target defendant, right? The, the, the business rather than just sue them. And if we can tag the, the, uh, the big entity then we don't have to worry about that. I'd like to add a, another element to this, that it's not a bias, but it's a blind spot which favors in, in the situation that you describe, it favors the, um, the defendant. And that is this, it's this lack of knowledge that I think a lot of non-lawyers don't have. Um, they think of this poor old lady and they're imagining her house getting sold at a foreclosure sale, right? They ima they're imagining her wages getting garnished. Um, but the, the way, you know, Collecting against individuals can be very difficult. Um, you know, taking someone's house, for example, if their own tenancy by entirety, you can't go after one person. Uh, people can file bankruptcy, as you mentioned. Um, you know, there's lots of prohibitions in different states on, on wage garnishments and things like that. So, like, all this stuff that you're scared about happening to this old lady would never even happen to her in the first place. So, it's it like you never have a bias in your head. That's actually unfounded. Exactly. It's it. I mean, first, I don't do it. You know, we don't I, I don't go after people personally. You know, that's just not what I do. I go after companies, mm -hmm. you know, and, I, and I'll go after insurance companies who are paying that bill. Um, but we're going to take the policy limit. And if my client is like, well, this person is only insured for 50,000. Um, my injuries are worth more. I don't want the 50. I want more than the 50,000 then a lot of times we have a conflict because I'm not willing to, you know, force the sale of someone's house for a mistake that they may have made in terms of, you know, their foot slipping off a brake or, you know, blowing a red light accidentally. There's, there's exceptions though. If you're drink, if you're drinking and driving and you're, you're, you're wasted and, and you did that, then you know what, maybe, maybe that's something that you deserve at this point, you know, if you're putting people's lives at risk. Um, and, and so there's a, there's so many different issues there, but, um, it really depends on the scenario as to whether or not it's a case that I, I feel like morally I, I can do with a good conscience and go after someone's assets. Um, if there was a, an intentional assault, like, you know, a, a physical assault where people are beat up, you know, that's maybe one of those scenarios. Or like I said, if you're drinking and driving and you're, you're really drunk, um, that could be one of those scenarios. But like outside of that, um, it's tough for me to... Uh, to align myself in a scenario where I'm going to be taking from the the people in terms of their assets. That's not really what I want to do. That doesn't effectuate the change that I talked about. Like that doesn't make the world a safer place. That just makes me a greedy, 
lawyer. I don't want to be that. Okay. So we've talked about the insurance company. Let's talk about the defendant in a different way. And this is something, again, I think lawyers are familiar with, but I think the other, the average person may not realize this concept of the reasonably, reasonably prudent person, right? I think a lot of times people see uh, things that give rise to, to civil action and they think, oh, well, it was an accident or, oh, well, uh, you know, it's not a big deal or they weren't really that reckless or, or something of that nature. Um, but they don't realize that, you know, you're, you're being held to a standard um, of what they call a really prudent person. You have to act with a certain level of care. And then despite your intentions, despite the type of person you are, despite all these things, if, if you breach that duty of care, that opens you up to liability uh, for something that, you know, you may have not intended to do. So yeah, would you like to talk yeah. about the reasonable, prudent person and how how some of our listeners should what they should take to mean by that? Right. So I would just add it's it's reasonable, prudent person under the same similar circumstances or similar circumstances. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what it essentially means is like what would the average like, you know, reasonably intelligent person do in this similar scenario? Um, so some like to take your example. Um, if someone doesn't see the red light because the sun is in their eyes, right? Um, well, that if an average person doesn't see the color of the light because the sun is in their eyes, would the average person just go through the light assuming that it's green? Or would the average person yeah. slow down, maybe stop um, because they, they know there's a light and they can't see the color? I think that's what the average reasonable person would do. But in your scenario, the person might say, oh, well, I didn't see the light. It was an accident. I didn't see it. I couldn't tell if it was red or green. So in that scenario, like you're saying, like you're, what you were saying, that person may say, well, it was just an accident. I didn't know. I, I didn't know it was red. Well, yeah, but under the circumstances, if the light's in your eye, the sun is in your eyes and you can't see, a reasonable person wouldn't just go willy-nilly through the light. They're going to slow down and stop and maybe think about it before they do that. And so that's when you got to add that under the circumstances part of it. Um, and, and of course, that's why you have insurance, right, to cover you in a car accident or if you made a mistake, it, it's something dangerous in your house, you have homeowner's insurance. Um, that's why people cover and have insurance to protect them from accidents because insurance doesn't cover intentional actions. If you just intentionally hit somebody with your car, insurance company is not going to cover that. If you intentionally, um, you know, well, if you intentionally assault someone, uh, chances are the insurance company is not going to cover that. Right. Um, so it's not, uh, it's not enough to just say, Oh, it was an accident. That's exactly what, civil liability is about. It's to compensate people for accidents. Um, now, that being said, sometimes just because an accident occurs doesn't mean that someone has to have been negligent, right? doesn't mean that someone necessarily didn't act as a reasonable, prudent person simply because an accident occurred. Um, Let me, I, I, got, I got a good one for you. I, I think I would like to ask this. I would love to pull attorneys. I think I would get a hundred different answers. I think it's the quintessential, it depends. But 
let's say you're going golfing and um, you hit a ball that leaves the course and causes damage to a property that is on the course. Now, I'm, I'm just talking about purpose of liability. I'm not getting into who pays for what. But is, is the individual who hit the ball, is that person liable for their actions? Or is that person, is that an example of what you said? Like, you know, they, they use an appropriate club. They weren't doing a happy Gilmore swing. They were aiming in good faith for the green. And therefore, we have an accident uh, that that is not the result of negligence. What do you think? My my thought is that they would not be negligent. Um, so, if you use all the appropriate clubs, you're you know you you aren't trying to break anything, and you just and an errant shot came off the club the wrong way, and you broke something. Okay, now here's where it gets different, though. If you hit an errant shot and you see it going towards a group of people. Because it was an iron shot. What do you what do you have to what does a reasonably reasonably a reasonably prudent person under the circumstances would yell for, right? Exactly. Exactly. And if you didn't if you didn't yell for, then you're negligent. But if you yell for, it is what it is. You know, it's an accident that uh, any other reasonable prudent person could have done the same thing. And if you're not doing something that the reasonable prudent person shouldn't have been doing, uh, then you're not you should not be considered to be negligent. And I think in that scenario, it's just like you got to yell for. Yeah. See, I, I love this question because there's so much. Gre- I feel it'd be a great law school question. I feel like it, I think I had no that wrong. on my tort exam, actually. Something about OK, that. I feel like there's no <laughs> wrong answer. I would want to hear what you have to say. I'm actually shocked. I thought you being the plaintiff's attorney would have come up with 100 different. But I like the four thing. That is a great argument that a reasonably prudent golfer is knows that they're to yell for. It is not only a custom, but it is it is in the interest of, you know, safety. Now, there's um, a couple other issues there, though, too, with you talking about hitting groups of golfers. Um, so first, you may be negligent. If you don't yell for, but the other folks who are playing, if you hit someone else who's on the course playing golf. There may be an, a, a, an aspect of assumption of the risk, because when you go on a golf course to play golf. There, you're assuming that you may get hit with another person's golf ball, an errant shot. So there's an assumption of the risk argument, which even though you're that the person who swung may be negligent for not yelling for, uh, the person who was struck may also have assumed the risk of injury by being on the course to begin with. Um, versus if you hit some, if you hit such an errant shot that you hit somebody in the parking lot who's not even playing golf, you know, who's just getting a bite to eat at the, uh, you know. That, that may be a completely different situation. That person didn't assume the risk of getting hit. Um, they're in the parking lot. They wouldn't have expected the ball to come that crazy out of the way. Uh, and if they didn't yell, if you don't yell for there, then you might be found liable. Okay. So let's talk about assumption of risk because that's uh, another concept that I think people know the name, but it's often hard to satisfy, isn't it, as a defendant to use that defense? It is. It, it comes up most of the time in sports, sports injuries. Um, it, you know, uh, you see it in um, you know the simple things like you know a roller skating situation uh, or ice skating rink, things like this, where you know if the ice isn't zamponied properly and someone trips and, and while they're skating and they fall and they injure themselves, well, you're going to sue the 
uh, ice skating rink because it wasn't Zambonied perfectly and it wasn't flat ice? Or did you assume the risk of falling because you, at the end of the day, you're skating on ice? Um, so that's where it comes down. And you see it also uh, a lot of times with, um, you know, sporting events. And there's case law about this. Um, you know, if you go to a hockey game or a baseball game and you get hit with a foul ball or uh, you know, a slap shot that comes into the into the stands, um, unfortunately, the law has been established that you've assumed that risk of injury by attending the event. Um, what bystanders who are viewing a, a sporting event assume a risk of injury of getting injured from from that activity uh now there are ways around it there are there are things that you can show uh that really establish that you didn't assume the risk of injury um for instance if uh most of the arenas where the nhl plays hockey has a certain type of setup uh with glass and obviously glass but then beyond the glass there's netting right um so the majority of them, if not all of them, have this netting set up in a pretty uniform way. Uh, so that's the reasonably prudent person under the circumstances. So the reasonably prudent person, reasonably prudent arena under the circumstances of a the circumstances being a hockey game will have this netting set up in the similar same way. Uh, now, if uh, there happens to be one arena that doesn't have that set up and then that's when you get injured, then you might have an argument to say, well, I didn't assume the risk because I assumed that there would be some protection here. And if they don't have this netting like everybody else does, then there must be a reason for that. Maybe it's set up in a way that the, the pucks don't come into the stands because of how high we are or the, the distance from the actual playing arena. And so that person may have the argument that I didn't assume the risk there. Uh, because it's different. The way they were doing it is so different than the way the rest of the reasonably prudent community does it. Um, so it comes down to that. And it, and on that point, I think that's an interesting point. We've seen the evolution of that in our lifetimes, right? You and I, I think, are close in age. Yeah. But growing up, there was netting behind home plate because even back in those those days, someone fully engaged if a foul ball is hit back to them behind home plate, they're not really in a position to defend themselves. Um, but then as time has gone on, there's been lots of publicized events of people on the third baseline and the first baseline getting hit with balls. And, and I think the publicity, no matter what is bad, even if there's an assumption of risk defense, it's negative reputation that nobody wants. Um, and, you know, and of course it's a tragedy in certain cases, um, but then also now with, people being more and more distracted at these events mm. are also yeah, that's a big problem. So in, in, I think baseball has mandated it that, you know, first and third base lines um, are extended almost all the way to the foul pole or, or something like that. Um, so it makes it much harder to catch a foul ball, but I guess you're uh, less scared. You're safer. Of, of getting yeah. Yeah. You're safer. And you know, so, but you said about the distraction, you make a good point. So there's this concept of assumption of the risk, which is one of the defenses that a defend that the arena would make, but also comparative negligence. So even in a scenario where the arena maybe didn't do the right thing, they didn't have the protections that everybody else has. So there's no assumption of the risk argument. Uh, but if that individual, it, you know, the person who's injured is looking down at their cell phone the entire time while the batter's batting, and they get hit in the head with a foul ball, well, 
that's not assumption of the risk anymore. Now we're talking about comparative negligence. Like that individual who was injured was also negligent because they weren't doing what a reasonable prudent person's doing. Like you shouldn't be looking at your phone when, you know, Nolan Ryan's about to throw a fastball. You know, it's not a good idea. But comparative negligence, and, and again, that's, I think, another concept that a lot of people aren't familiar with the laws. They'll say, oh, well, he was doing this. She was doing that. Therefore, it's not my fault. All it does is reduces the the reward. Is that correct? Like, so if you have an incident where one party's at fault, another person was doing something that they shouldn't have been doing. Um, often it's the case if they're entitled to 100000 it gets reduced by the amount of which they were comparatively negligent. Is that correct? That's true in Pennsylvania to an extent. Okay. Um, so every jurisdiction's different. Um, but Pennsylvania is a comparative negligent state. And so uh, you're right that your award is reduced by the percentage of your own negligence, of your own negligence. So if you have a hundred thousand dollar award and the jury says that the defendant is 80% negligent and you're 20% negligent, then you are able to collect eighty thousand dollars, not the full hundred. However, that only works up to 50%. If you're considered to be any more than 50% negligent, then you cannot recover at all from that defendant. So if you're 51% negligent and the defendant's 49% negligent, you don't get to collect 49,000, you get zero. And that's important because it happens a lot in trip and slip and fall cases because there's always this concept of, um, comparative negligence, but it's also considered there's a specific part of that. It's called open and obvious, uh, the open mm-hmm. and obvious defense, where the, the plaintiff has an obligation to avoid an open and obvious hazard. So if you're walking down the sidewalk and you see in front of you uh, that the pavement is all broken up and you choose to walk over that anyway, um, then you may have inca- you, you may be considered to be negligent. In that scenario, even though the defendant, the owner of the property is also negligent for not maintaining their property. But if you are considered to be more than 50% negligent by the jury, you don't get to collect 49% or 35%, whatever it is that they said that the defendant was negligent, you don't get anything. So you got to beat the 50%. It's got to be 50% or better. And if you don't get 50% on the defendant or better, then you don't get to collect. Thanks for breaking that down. Yes, it, it's definitely more complex than I than I understood it. Or I mean, thanks for explaining all those intricacies. Um, let's talk about premises liability a little bit. You know, one thing that I always, after going to law school, was I always said, I'll never own a pool. After hearing uh, some of these some of these stories, because it often seems with premises liability that things that I think defy our logic um, are not the case. So, you know, owning a pool and being liable for either people that your guests doing something dumb or people even who are intruders doing something dumb and hurting themselves and the whole attractive nuisance and having to, you know, have fencing around to protect people from their own actions. Uh, so talk a little bit about premises liability and, and some of the things that people may not be aware of. Yeah, so you mentioned the pools, and I think that's a good one. Um, of course, in 
in Philly, we don't come across that too much. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I've seen enough of it to know a little bit about it. And essentially, um, if you're a homeowner and you have a pool, you better have it. You better have a fence around it, a good fence, or have it secured with the you know, tarp. Those, those kinds of pool tarps that they have that are specifically made for um, preventing someone from falling into it. They also have like alarms and things like this. Um, so, and the idea I think that what you're talking about is like you might have a pool in your yard, uh, and you would never expect. You know, you may not have kids, but have a pool. Right. You might not have any children, but you have a pool. You and your wife might be able to swim great. Right. So you're thinking it's all good. I don't have anything to worry about. Uh, and then your uh, neighbor's 13 year old trespasses on your property, comes uh -huh. into your land. Their, their parents aren't watching them and yep. drown, drowns in your pool. Uh, you're you're going to be held somewhat responsible for that. And it defies logic because I think, like you mentioned, you know, it doesn't really jive with what our natural understanding would be. But the reason for this is because you have to anticipate that a pool is going to invite children. And you have to anticipate that not all children are going to be wise enough to um, not go into your pool, not trespass on your property and go into your pool. Uh, so it's it, you should expect that children may do that. Um, and now there's other levels to this where it's like, because like a child cannot be negligent if they're under a certain age. Um, it's usually around 13. And then after 13, there's a uh, sort of a sliding scale. The judge has to make a determination. Oh, really, really? Is, it, thing. is that is that a PA K uh, standard? Yeah, I could have swore yeah. I wrote a case, I, heard, I read a case and it was at common law where a child pulled the chair of somebody and was held to be negligent uh, because they knew the the difference. They they basically knew what would happen when they did it. And again, obviously, this person didn't collect, right? But it's a purpose of teaching yeah. us. Um, but I don't know if that's a common age. law concept or or if that's a PA concept or if it's changed or what. Yes. Yeah, so there's a there's a there's PA law about this. I, I believe it's 12 years old. Uh, if you're under 12, you're it, the default is you cannot be negligent. Um, and then if you're over 12, it's like there's from 12 to 14. It's like a gray area. And then over 14, you could be held negligent. Um and so, and even if you're under 12, there's things that, that that gets into it, like how sophisticated, educated, and things like this are you, so that the the jury can determine that you are negligent. So there's a, still it's gray, but there's the default is you cannot be held negligent. Now it's like a higher burden to establish the negligence. They have to establish not only that you didn't act reasonably, but that you had like a sufficient understanding of the issues involved. So it gets more difficult for them. Um, and so. Yeah, it comes into play because you can't use that argument against the 10 year old who, you know, trespasses on your lawn and uh, and, and drowns in your swimming pool. Because um, chances are they're not going to be negative. Now, what you could do, uh, depending on the circumstances in that scenario, the defendant in that scenario could join. This is what you see a lot. It's actually kind of sad because a lot of a lot of these cases, this happens. It happened. I've seen it a lot in uh, like dog bite incidents. Um I've seen it in, in swimming pool incidents. I've seen it in uh, assaults, um, you know, where 
the individual is a minor and does something negligent that results in um, his or her own damages. And then the parents sue, like in the pool scenario. So if you use this as an example, if a young child may pass away swimming in, in your pool after they trespass on your lawn, um, and then the child's parents, on behalf of the child, sue you, right, the property owner. Well, mm-hmm. your insurance company is going to defend you, and then they're going to say, oh, really? oh yeah, well, no, they're going to they're going to join the parents of the the nine year old kid, and they're going to say the parents were negligent for failing to supervise their own nine year old kid who wound up trespassing on the lawn and dying in the pool. It's sad because in that scenario, it's like the parents are trying to recover for their child, and if they didn't die, maybe they have major damages. They may need lifelong care because of something terrible that happened to that child, and now. The defense is pointing the finger back at the parents saying, oh, it wasn't because my my uh, the principal in this community, the, the insurance company would force you, the defendant, to join the parents. And so essentially the insurance company is taking the position, oh, well, it wasn't our insured's fault because of their, they didn't have the fence around the pool, even though that's the regulation and the requirement of the in the code for that county. It wasn't his fault. It's your fault for not watching your own kid. Yeah, that's terrible, right? But mm-hmm. that gets into the evil of an insurance company. Okay. You know, they they don't care that it's sound that it's terrible. They don't care. They just want to defend their pocket as best as they can. So yeah, let's, let's, I mean, interesting stuff with the pool stuff and the, and, and again, same same argument with dogs. Dog bites is a very similar kind of uh, analysis. Let's talk about another thing that I think also probably comes up. You probably see it. Uh, serving alcohol to people at your house when there's parties is, is the owner mm. often or can the owner be held liable? I know you mentioned earlier, often it, it's, it's easier if there's an interest, a vested interest that they're making money off these sales. But what if you have people over for a gathering and they drink too much and then something happens? Can you, so, the, the owner of the property, end up becoming the deep pocket in this situation? Yes. Um you know, I think we all we all learn in law school. There's no civil host liability. You know, like that's like, but there's for hundreds of years, like the law has been that you you cannot be liable for providing alcohol to people at your home, right? No matter what they do, and that's always been the law. Okay, um, but we're seeing some changes on that recently. Uh, and so I hesitate to say that that's still the case. And I think you can be found liable. Uh, so I think what I, what I want to disclaimer, like, you know, um, you have really good defenses, but it's never a sure thing. That's one of those lawyer answers. But uh, it's the best I could do with that one. Um, in fact, I've had a case with that involves something similar to this. Um, and uh, we it was a, say, a, a farm. Um, these people own a farm. And uh, they leased the farm to these uh, particular individuals who then threw a like a, a rave at the farm. And um, at the rave, there was, uh, you know, they were serving alcohol to minors and there was a big fight. And this young girl got injured. She fractured her hip. She had to have surgery on her femur. Um, and it was terrible. And we wound up suing the farm under the theory that they 
knew or should have known that um, the lessees of the farms, people who leased it that particular night, were going to have this rave. Um, and so that's a little different because we were able to get around the whole no civil, no social host liability argument by saying that they weren't really the social host, right? So, so the the lessees were the social hosts. The people who leased the farm for that party, that rave, were the social hosts. They're the ones who provided the alcohol. So the law who says no social host liability doesn't apply to the landlord who provided the, uh, the the permission to have that party. And so our argument was against the landlord who actually um, you know, leased it to the social host. Uh, so technically, um, there is still law that will defend you if you are just, you know, giving people who are over 21 alcohol at your home and they go out and they are drunk and they hit somebody. The law is not going to come back to you. Uh, but um, you got to be careful in certain scenarios. Like I said, there are ways around it. Um, another thing uh, in doing my research for that case, uh, I came across uh, well, a good friend of mine who had a similar case too. We kind of joined forces on this and uh, we came across some good law about uh, how the law is changing with respect to the service of alcohol to minors. Um, so if you're serving alcohol to minors, totally different. Right. Uh, if it, even if it's social, no social host liability doesn't apply if you're serving alcohol to minors. There's there's exceptions to that. And that all came about. I'm sure you remember this, Mark, you know, with, the, you know, it's like a, the fraternity stuff. You know, yeah. Frat, frats and how they're, you know, serving alcohol and then ultimately the fraternity organization. Uh, they're serving alcohol to their pledges or to you know students, and they wind up being intoxicated. They die, or they cause problems, fight, whatever. Uh, the frat can ultimately be held responsible um, for that, and uh, so that's where that that law kind of started to change once you saw these big this hazing started becoming a problem sort of nationally. All right, let me let me give you a moment to. The time is yours, as Andy Reid used to say. Why don't you promote something on your end, either yourself, your firm, your cause, anything that you feel passionate about that our audience should hear? Yeah, well, first, I, you know, thank you. This has been a lot of fun for me. I, I'd like to do it again. Um, I love talking about this stuff. It's like an intellectual feast for me. Um, sometimes when you're in the nitty gritty, you're just uh, plugging away case by case and and doing your thing. It, on in the actual practice of law, um, it, it can get mundane. And so it's nice to kind of step back and take a sort of an existentialist kind of view of everything and say, Hey, this is actually kind of interesting when you look at it from this way. And that's what this enabled me to do. And it, and it felt good to be able to do this because it is, it is really fun. Um, and, uh, but you, you lose sight of that when you're sort of in the trenches. So thank you. Happy to do it again. Um, as far as, uh, you know, what I do, uh, I work, I'm with, my name's Nick Palazzo. I'm with a Defino law firm. I've been there for 13 years and it's all I've been doing since I got out of law school. I love what I do, uh, especially in the personal injury realm. Um, I like to focus on catastrophic injury cases. Um, and uh, my, my goal, I suppose, is, is to not only get my clients fully compensated to the best I can, uh, but also make sure that we create a safer 
place for our community. That's really at the, when you take all the layers off, uh, why personal injury attorneys are, are important is because they keep businesses in check. They make, they keep companies in check and make sure that they're doing things internally to, with their practices so that the public has a safe place to shop, to um, party, to eat, to do whatever the public does on an everyday basis. Uh, without personal injury attorneys, big companies would just keep padding their pockets. They wouldn't care about the regular people. And every time you went to a Walmart, you'd be slipping and falling all over the place. Um, we need personal injury attorneys to make sure that the world is safe. And it's not just the Walmart scenario, because from everything from driving in the car, uh, making sure that people aren't on their cell phones, that was a big thing. You know, that came, dry, you know, laws prohibiting that came about because of, of personal injury attorneys bringing those issues up in cases. Um, you know, drunk driving, uh, another thing. You know, we need injury attorneys to hold defendants accountable, hold bars accountable when they're over-serving individuals who wind up driving drunk and killing people. Uh, without personal injury attorneys holding those bars and restaurants accountable, the bars and restaurants are going to keep making money hand over fist because they don't care about us. They just care about making money. And that's the sad part. Uh, so without the personal injury business, I do fear that we would not have as safe of a world as we have. And it would and it's my job as a personal injury attorney to keep our community in Philadelphia as safe as, as it could be. And so I do that. Uh, it's a twofold goal of mine, not just to um, do that, but also to make sure that I actually get to compensate uh, my clients uh, and make sure that they're made whole again. Uh, I love what I do. I get to talk to regular people who are like me. I get to explain the changes that my regular clients have been through to regular people on a Philadelphia jury. Uh, and, and that's what I love. So I like to talk, as you can tell. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So about the good that you guys do, my wife and I do this all the time. We will point at something. We're like, that's a subsequent remedial measure, right? right. So some, right. Nick Palazzo either sued somebody for making you know a mistake when it comes to safety or in fear of some Nick Palazzo suing somebody. Uh, People took efforts to create, uh, you know, a safeguard, a control, put something in place um, that has then gone on to benefit, uh, you know, more people. A um, couple other things I, I want to talk about before we get going. Um, and this one, you said you'd like to do it again. Uh, I know we talked about this a while ago, but you were, um, you know, you, you, you were in the middle of a trial. Um but I'd like to get you and your wife actually on to, I think this, what I'm going to ask you right now, I think warrants its own podcast. I actually wrote a lengthy blog post about it, but violence in the, in, in the, in sports versus violence in real life. Right. So, um, you know, in sports, we'll see a guy charge the mound. We'll see, uh, fights between Draymond green and, and Jordan pool, we see these things and it's just kind of brush them off. And um, it's just another, it's part of the game almost. Right. But what's actually happening is you, know, you have crimes being committed and you have torts being committed. Right. Um, and the elite are playing by their own set of rules. So what I want to ask you about this is first of all, you know, 
because my theory on this is that on the civil side, I, I don't think there's anything in the collective bargaining agreement. Like these parties are free to sue one another, um, but they choose not to. And there's a variety of reasons why they would choose not to do that. Um, but, you know, a batter getting in, a pitcher intentionally thrown at a batter and especially the pitcher admitting it. I mean, that's that's a tort that they could be liable for. Um, so, you know, I, I often feel that they, um, you know, people see that happen and maybe want to be violent at the workplace and they should think twice. Yeah, well, here's the thing. I mean, I think it's only a matter of time. I, you know, in all the examples that I could think of, um, and I watch, I'm a four for four guy, you know, uh, I've seen it all. Um, but I don't think anyone's ever actually gotten really hurt, you know, and I think that's part of it from a civil and a criminal perspective. So, you know, from a civil perspective, okay, maybe Jordan Poole gets punched in the face by Draymond Green and he's got a black eye. But then he's on the basketball court making $20 million, you know, a year the next week. So what damages are there for for his black eye? Who's going to feel bad for him when he's making $20 million a week or a year playing basketball with the black eye? Right. So so there's not a lot of damages. Um, so that I think that probably factors into why there's uh, no civil suits. And I also think from this, on the civil side, it, it really does come down to custom and practice. You know, they may. And, you know, you've played sports, Mark. Hmm. You might get into it with somebody and and pissed off. And you start yelling and screaming and maybe a push or two. Right. Um, but it's in the heat of the moment. It's part of the game. And and afterward, you know, you kind of just say, yeah, well, forget about it. No big deal. And you may be friends again. Right. Um, hmm. And I think that's that's big part of that as well. It's custom and practice of these guys to kind of really put all they're all in the line. And sometimes that comes out in some form of physical aggression. Um, so maybe that's part of it too. Uh, I, I would like to see if I don't want to see it, I should say it would be interesting to see um, if someone was seriously injured, uh, maybe a career ending type of injury. Um, what so would happen has, in that scenario? I got to look into it. And I thought there might've been civil damages awarded. Uh, there was a guy named Rudy Tomjanovich. He was the coach of the Rockets in the nineties when they won the finals back to back during his playing days, he was cold cocked during um, a fight and almost died. Um, See? Yeah. Like that. I, I think he did sue and I think he was awarded. So I think it has happened, but, but you're right that these are few and Bertuzzi in hockey, I think is another incident. Um, but I, I think you're right. They're few and far between. Um, and then also, you know, you sue in, in civil court often because there's no remedy for what happened to you. And often in sports through kangaroo court, there is a remedy. Right. So your guy gets thrown at, then your team retaliates. And, and then that way, the, you know, the tensions cool a little bit, whereas in real life, you're aggrieved. The only thing to do is to file a lawsuit. There's also uh, just back to the uh, the warrior situation. You can't. So in most states, you can't sue your own employer. Right. You also can't sue a coworker because of the workers compact. So if you're injured by a coworker or by your employer's negligence, 
you can't sue your coworker or your employer for their negligence or even their intentional actions. Um, so I don't know that Jordan Poole could have sued Draymond Green. I'm not sure how it works in California, but I would imagine because most states, you can't sue your employer. So he wouldn't have been able to sue a coworker or an employer in that scenario, even for an intentional act. Um, That's a so good point. I'm wondering about that. And then um, I'm not sure, but with the uh, the coach scenario, uh, that I, I, and I'm not I'm not sure how the professional sports organizations view if there's one workers if it's one employer like are they all employees of the NHL or are they employees of the individual teams and how does the workers compact affect that in those individual states or nationally um, or there may be an opt out where part of the collective bargaining agreement they opt out of the comp scenario and they go internally with an uh, sort of an internal process to um you know alleviate those claims um i'm not sure but it's interesting but i think that's what makes it even more from a criminal perspective it makes it even more interesting because when you take the civil layer out of it um you know the significance of the damages is not always what is the driving force of a criminal prosecution it's the intent to cause a significant injury that is often the the uh, driving force of why a prosecutor might prosecute. So in the Draymond Green scenario, it's like, yeah, all right, maybe Jordan Poole wasn't injured, but Draymond, the way you punched him, you certainly looked like you wanted to hurt him, you know, yeah. or similar scenarios. So it's like, why in those, I would really, I think that's really, uh, we should do a deep dive on that because why aren't, um, especially like repeat offenders, so, and he has priors. Time. So yeah, there was an, in, yeah, there was an incident before. In, at Michigan State where he slapped someone outside of a bar. Right. And, you know, he, he got probate, probation because it was his first offense or whatever. And obviously he's a god. There's a history he, of violent conduct. Um, you know, there's I would think that, you know, a prosecutor would look at that and say, we want to prosecute this guy because he has a history of continued violent conduct in these situations. Um, and it, you know, we have to do something about that, but you know, it's a shame, but I guess some people get away with things that others don't. Yep. But I, that's where that was this deep dive in the criminal end of it. I'm going to bring Val in on that. Yeah, no, like when you guys are somehow able to make time, I, I would love to, to go yeah, into, as like, you know, she's uh she's like, 39 and a half weeks pregnant and we're we're i'm waiting for the call right now you know it's gonna happen any second so we'll see but yeah. all right so hear me out i took a few things down uh as far as psas after talking to my guy my my personal injury guy let me know if you would agree and let me know if you would uh add to this right so number one is what we just talked about don't charge the mound in your softball game, right? Because yeah. you could be civil, civilly and criminally liable. Like the and you're not Draymond are, Green. <laughs> just because yeah. you see the pros get away with this kind of thing does not, you know, does not mean that you're you're not going to be held liable, right? Oh, you're definitely oh, not. I've had a case. I've had a case very similar. That it's exactly what happened. It was a flag football game, and there was a heated play. And there was pushing and shoving, and my client was was cold cocked by the other individual, and we sued him and the arena, and they both paid. Um, 
because he was, it was a fractured jaw surgery, the whole mm-hmm. nine. And, and it was a bad situation. And they had the whole consent waivers, you know, you're waiving liability, you're, you're assuming the risk of injury. Well, you're assuming the risk of injury from, you know, uh, a torn ACL if you turn wrong, you know, but on the right. field, you're not assuming you're going to get punched in a flag football game. Like, no, there's no assumption of the injury of risk there. Yep. So we did that. And yeah, absolutely. You can be held liable. And that individual was also criminally prosecuted for it. So it, it both can happen. All right. Number two is don't lend your car to somebody because then you can become the deep pocket, right? You, you give yes. rise to negligent entrustment, right? And you could be exposing your liability um, even though that other person was driving, that other person was acting negligently, that other person caused the accident. Um, there's ways for you, lawyer, for you plaintiff's lawyers to come back after the party that lend the car. Would you agree? Like think twice before lending your car. A hundred percent. And especially if you have reason to know that, that individual that you're lending the car to may not be the best driver. And even more so, uh, if you, if, even if you don't know that they're not the best driver, you might think they're the best driver in the whole world, but if they're doing you a favor, they're going to go pick up your kids. They're going to go pick something up from the store for you. And you say, oh, I can't get around to it. Can, I'll lend you my car. Can you go grab this for me? And they go, you're now considered that person's uh, sort of, quote unquote, employer or their principal. And they're your agent. And they you can be responsible for their activities because they were doing something that was benefiting you. Um, there is a concept of vicarious liability there that comes up a lot. Uh, so yeah, don't lend your car to someone and don't ask people to do you favors. And if you do expect that it might come back on you. Okay. So we're agreement on the first two. Um, number three is pay for training. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, as they say. And you, you've mentioned this a lot. A lot of times employees are annoyed by all the training they have to go through. Uh, they think it's stupid, you know, whether it's sexual harassment training or whether it's Whatever, whatever the training is in your instance, you're talking about security tactics, pay that money up front because it could help insulate you when you get socked with a lawsuit um, and, and they delve into your practices. Yeah. And not not for the bar aspect of it, the restaurant bar thing, it's it's um, security training for your security guards. But also uh, there's there's. Uh, alcohol service training for your bartenders so that they know they're not over serving people and there's there's specific types of trainings uh specific to that and in every field in every area every type of employment situation there's different types of training uh safe driving training for truck drivers and and things like this so um yes pay for the training uh because if you don't best believe if you injure one of my clients i'm going to exploit the fact that you didn't pay for that training (laughs) Uh, the next one I have is don't be that cool parent who's, who lets the minors drink and serves minors, serves drinks to minors at your house. Cause that opens you up to some liability for, for years and years. It wasn't the case, but it's definitely turning the other way now. And, um, and, and you could be responsible for not just if that individual who's drinking gets injured or over, over drinks and, has something happened because of that, but also for that individual's conduct, uh, if they wind up becoming aggressive or reckless and doing something 
terrible to someone else, you could be responsible for that as well. And then finally, don't own a don't own a pool. It's not worth the headache. Use someone <laughs> yeah. else's pool. <laughs> Make fr- it's for like more than one reason. It's like yeah. a boat. Make friends with someone who has one and show up there and have your good time. Chip in. For yeah, what they say. The 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 best two days or the the best days of owning a boat, right? The two best days of owning a boat: the day the day you put it in the water, the first day, and the day you sell it. And it's yep. probably the same thing with a pool: the day you get in the water and the day you fill the hole up. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Nick. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining. Uh, to all my yeah, listeners, no this is great. Stay solid. Stay solid. Uh, Nick, he's my guy for PI Law. And if you're interested in or if you're in need of assistance, he could be your guy too. Thank you. Need a lawyer? Are you having financial, criminal, or family challenges? Call or text the Mark Kachi Law Firm, 215 439 7899.